Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Michael Lesser, who's a professor emeritus at the University of New Hampshire. He was here to talk about coral and how it's affected by nutrients, climate change, and a number of other stressors, and what all that means for the future of reefs. I learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you will too. So with no further ado, let's go right to it. Dr. Lesser, thank you very much for joining me today. Appreciate you having me here. Okay, we're going to be talking a lot about reefs and various different things that affect them. Um, so I was hoping you could just give us a, a brief introduction to coral reefs and you know some of the species that make them up and, and how they function, uh, just to give us a nice baseline. So I've been a coral reef biologist ecologist for uh, most of my academic career, and coral reefs are a unique uh, ecosystem uh, in tropical environments, as most people understand it, although there are other kinds of reefs in other places. Coral reefs where the predominant uh, feature of the reef is the presence of corals is a tropical phenomenon uh, and very high, very, very, very high biodiversity um, and significant differences between different biogeographical regions in terms of the dominant groups of organisms that you might see on a coral reef, like in the Pacific, very much dominated by uh, hard corals or scleractinian corals, percent cover-wise, whereas in the Caribbean you might see a, a more diverse uh, flora and fauna. Um, so very interesting system. Uh, first described one one of the first people to describe coral reefs was Darwin, of course, and one of the paradoxes of coral reefs, which we'll talk about today in some some in many ways, is the issue of how does this biodiversity uh, occur in such what we call oligotrophic or low nutrient waters. So it, that was one of the paradoxes that Darwin described. He would look under, he would look and see all these species and yet the water column is really depauperate of nutrients and, and other organisms that might support those species. So how did this occur? And uh, some of his seminal studies are still a uh, question today. And by nutrients, you know, what are we talking about in general? Well, when most uh, coral reef ecologists, when uh, they talk about nutrients, they're primarily talking about nitrogen, but we also, uh, various forms of inorganic nitrogen, like ammonia, nitrate, nitrite. But there are other nutrients that are very, very important, uh, including uh, phosphorus and also micronutrients like iron have become uh, increasingly uh, recognized as, as important constituents uh, for the function, the healthy function, functioning of, of corals and coral reefs. And, you know, is that, is that relevant in the, you know, the kind of current situation that we often hear about in relation to coral reefs, which is, you know, the, the effects of climate change and things like that? Well, it, it, they're intertwined. Uh, when I first got into this business, I, we were not talking very much about climate change at all as, uh, and its effects on coral reefs. Uh, we were mostly talking about uh, coastal development, population growth, uh, agricultural and, and uh, industrial pollution, which included inorganic nutrients. And so there was a big emphasis on those sorts of, uh, of insults to coral reefs. Then climate change roared into our lives and on the scene. And, and uh, for many coral reef ecologists, uh, they've spent the rest of their career studying the effects of climate change on corals, uh, sponges, and other members of the coral reef flora and fauna, and the ecology of coral reefs and how they have changed over time uh, 
as a result of climate change. Now we've come full circle and we're now we're back talking more about those uh, historical issues of eutrophication and uh, pollution and those sorts of things because they intertwine with climate change. Uh, the, the theory right now, the working hypothesis is that exposure of coral reefs to these coastal insults like eutrophication and chemical industrial pollution make corals less resilient to the effects of climate change, make them more sensitive. So we can't really disentangle these two things anymore, climate change and let's say, broadly speaking, the effects of, of human beings, anthropogenic effects. Uh, so that really is a, a concerted effort right now for the coral reef community uh, to develop the science, inform people who are uh, trying to get good policies in place uh, and try to uh, save for what is in many areas uh, a, a poor prognosis for coral reefs in the future. That's interesting. And, you know, it seems like it might play into some of the, you know, the, the management approaches that you would take as well, because, you know, you can you can act on these local insults, perhaps in a way that you, uh, it's more challenging to act on, you know, a, a global climate change type of scenario. A absolutely. And and the time scales are different too. Uh, so the, the and, and you're absolutely correct. Many uh, coral reef scientists now are are turning their attention to more of these local stressors, local effects, in order to try and stave off the longer term effects of global climate change uh, on coral reefs. And also hopefully make those reefs more resilient in the face of those climate change. If they're not having to deal with the stressors uh, associated with uh, coastal environments or, 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 or uh, anthropogenic in nature, then they might be, we might have some time. We're trying to create time right now in order to address these issues. So those issues are important. Uh, restoration is a very important thing. So understanding the physiology and ecology of coral species as it relates to who do we grow and put back in to the environment that we're not really changing that much i.e. if it's a coastal environment that has uh, nutrients that we believe affect corals, we need to put in genotypes uh, of, of corals that are going to survive and do well in the face of those local insults, as well as maybe climate change stresses. So restoration, management decisions, how do we deal with the burgeoning population around the world and uh, the effluent of uh, human activity that flows into coastal environments is are all very omnipresent on the mind of reef scientists these days. Okay, and let's talk just a little bit about, um, you know, um, what happens to coral when it's under threat. And, you know, I, I leave it to you whether we talk about, you know, the sort of the, um, you know, the, the local anthropogenic effects or the, the broader climate change effects, you know, what, um, what happens to a reef when it's, you know, unhealthy or, or otherwise challenged? Yes. Well, Early in the history of our uh, studies on climate change effects, and primarily we're talking about the results of uh, increased CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, those being transferred to higher uh, CO2 in the water, uh, and then the effects of both thermal stress as a result of high CO2 in the atmosphere, and ocean acidification as a result of that CO2 that's being absorbed by the water. So we have 
climate change effects by themselves. And those have, we have shown quite convincingly um, that ocean acidification on the time scales that we're talking about is probably not going to dramatically affect coral reefs uh, as we might have thought about when the, the subject matter first came about. But ocean acidification can interact significantly with thermal stress and change the set point for the detrimental effects of thermal stress. So uh, the reef gets hotter, the water, the water column gets hotter, especially in the summer. And we have this phenomenon of, of coral bleaching, uh, which is caused by the disruption of the relationship between the host, which is uh, actually a sea, a sea anemone-like creature, a cnidarian, and its algal symbionts, uh, Symbiodiniaceae, colloquially known as zooxanthellae. And so those algae live inside the host, photosynthesize in the highlight environment of the tropics, and pass on carbon and other nutri nutrients to the host. And uh, they've survived over millions and millions of years as a result of this very, very, very important mutualistic symbiosis. That symbiosis breaks down in the face of climate change stressors. Now, nutrients add another dimension on top of that. There's been some very interesting work recently. And, and I think the, the issue in the, the bioscience paper that I tried to bring to light is that the recent data showing that the ratio of certain nutrients can be uh, detrimental to corals and lead to uh, increased susceptibility to bleaching is different than just nutrient loading by itself. Uh, so the ratios, it turns out, are just as important as the total amount. And they may, in fact, I would suspect, have uh, significantly different effects. Um, but if we have a situation where a reef is located in an area where the, the ratios are changed, it makes them more susceptible to the thermal stress uh, that climate change brings. And that's been shown uh, in one or two studies. And uh, I think the, the take home message from the bioscience paper is that there's a lot, a lot, there's a lot we still don't know about how this all works. Um, and it was one of the impetuses for me to, to write the paper it was just all these years I've been reading literature on, on nutrients and eutrophication. And I'm like, no, there's a lot of incomplete pictures here. Uh, and we're going to make policy based on some of these uh, uh, s studies. And I, I think we need more information. So is that, you know, a situation in which you, you know, you have nutrients and you might be tempted to regulate, you know, the amount of runoff that you get from agriculture or something like that. But also of importance is not just the total, you know, net amount of stuff that is being dumped into the water, but what it is in fact and that kind of thing. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And different sources, uh, riverine sources, forest uh, degradation uh, leading into watersheds, uh, sewage, industrial pollution, all of these have different types of nutrient loading and ratios of nutrients, which could affect 
what is what occurs in the water column and what the corals and other organisms are exposed to. And so, you know, just trying to think of an example there, um, you know, is there a particular, you know, kind of a reef structure or that is affected in a way that, you know, would allow us to sort of, you know, talk about ways that, you know, one, um, you know, pollutant or, or other thing might have, you know, a particular effect on that reef different from another? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, there's this, the issue, there's the, the one of the big issues is that uh, the phenomenon of, of nutrient ratios and its effect on the susceptibility of corals is not going to be universal to all corals and all reefs. It's going to be a phenomenon that is focused in coastal reef ecosystems. So if you look at the, the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, its coastal reefs are significantly infected by a huge watershed and a very large agriculturally based uh, uh, system where if you go to the middle uh, and outer reef systems uh, in the Great Barrier Reef, they are largely unaffected. Dilution is the solution in this regard. You, those nutrients that you see in the coastal environment don't permeate themselves out to mid-distance uh, mid and long-distance reefs uh, of the GBR. So what's happening on the outer reefs is very different than what's happening on the inner reefs. Okay, maybe we can take just a quick pause and you know talk about something that I was I was wonder about you know when I you know kind of casually read news stories and stuff about coral reefs, which is um, you know we'll get a story that says that such and such reef is large portion dead or bleached or or something like that. You know what are we actually talking about? What's the actual you know insult that's occurring to the reef and and what's its you know real status when those types of things are happening to it? Well, you can, I mean. I've been studying, most of my personal work has been in the Caribbean basin. And the Caribbean basin, since it, at this particular point in time, is functionally not a coral reef as we think about coral reefs when you say that word. And what has happened in the Caribbean are multiple insults. So we have overfishing effects, which reduce herbivores who are feeding on algae. We get algae overgrowth, which outcompetes corals, which causes mortality. We have nutrients uh, and other uh, 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 insults coming from coastal activities, anthropogenic in nature. Then on top of that, we have uh, elevated uh, water temperatures from climate change that are causing this dis dissociation between the host and the symbionts. Once the symbionts are expelled from the coral, which is the end result of that insult, the coral is in a situation where the cost-benefit analysis is what I, how I look at it. The cost-benefit analysis for the coral is that I cannot afford any longer to keep these algae living inside of me. They are causing me more harm and giving me less food than under normal circumstances. So I'm going to get rid of them. Now, I always hold on to a few because hopefully we get past the bad times and let those internal algae regrow inside the coral and hopefully they survive. The problem is that we've had multiple insults on annual or semi-annual bases, not allowing or providing corals enough time to actually recover. So instead of just coral bleaching, we used to, we used to swim on reefs and see coral bleaching, and you could actually uh, do, a, uh, do a little touch test, touch the coral. If you could feel mucus, that coral was probably still alive. 
um, but it had expelled most of its algae. Now we've just gone right to necrosis, right to death. So the corals actually don't survive. So the Caribbean, as I said, you know, there, there's, um, you know, 60, 75% of the corals that we used to see on Caribbean reefs are, are, are gone. In the Pacific, uh, there has been less of an, as dramatic an effect in the Pacific than we've seen in the Caribbean. Although bleaching does occur, obviously, in the last few years, the Great Barrier Reef has been decimated, especially the upper Great Barrier Reef. So it's for years, they were insulated from the same effects that we were seeing in the Caribbean basin. And now they have seen several years of, of dramatic uh, coral mortality due to uh, thermal events, uh, high water temperature events. So um, the the thing about the Pacific is that they're so speciose, they have so many species of corals compared to the Caribbean, that even when you get significant mortality uh, of corals in the Pacific, you have local reefs and oceanographic patterns that support recruitment of new corals to those areas. So you look at long places where there are long-term studies done, uh, and you can see if something like a crown of thorns runs through or a bleaching event runs through and causes mortality. It takes about 10 years. As long as there are other reefs and the oceanographics are favorable uh, for that, those reefs to repopulate with their corals. And they, many of them actually come back. Others of them don't and, and undergo what we call a, a phase shift and form a new type of community, uh, which is what's happened in the Caribbean. Pacific less so but not uh, but still occurs okay so i want to i want to talk a little bit about you know the differences between you know pacific and caribbean um reefs in a second but just to make sure that i've got the mechanism right it's um, what happens is you know there's some stressor um you know to the coral it it begins to you know eject um you know its symbionts um which is bleaching right. and if it's if it's holding on to you know some level some number of them and surviving it's bleached but capable of recovery that, um and if it and but it could also become mortality event in which case you're basically looking at you know forgive me the skeleton of the coral or something like that absolutely that's exactly what you're looking at and there's a whole you know people are interested in the molecular me and physiological mechanisms that lead to the actual endpoint coral bleaching the ejection of the algae from the initial insult temperature stress combined with light, maybe with nutrients or without nutrients. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a huge body of work on looking at that. But from an ecological perspective, the bottom line is the end result is the ejection of the algae. Uh, if the stress is too high or the timing of the time frame of the stress is too long, then it turns into a mortality event rather than just a bleaching event. Okay, perfect. I, I, I think I get it. Um, and so what's the difference between, you know, Pacific and Caribbean reefs? You know, why are, why do, why is it more speciose in the Pacific than it is in the Caribbean? Evolutionary history, you know, uh, the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific and areas in the Indo-Pacific are, are the epicenter of coral evolution. Uh, so they've had a longer time uh, to evolve multiple species. Uh, and then in the Caribbean, uh, some of those species did uh, transport across the Pacific, but then we had the closing of the Isthmus of Panama, and now we have an isolated system with a specific 
a small group of species that evolved by themselves and were no longer uh, able to get new species from the epicenter of, of, of coral evolution. Um, so uh, it, it just, it's, a, it's an accident of geography and oceanography uh, that the Caribbean was more species depauperate compared to the Pacific. Okay, so then I guess the multi-multi-billion-dollar question, um, which I unfairly ask from time to time, is if you had, let's say, many billions of dollars, and you oh wanted to, you know, multi-trillion these reefs that you could, um, what sorts of things would you do, and, and what actions would you take to sort of, you know, look at shoring up these systems so that they're more resilient to, you know, the thermal stressors that we know are coming, and longer term the acidification. I think you know. The, the problem with, personally, I think, and I think a lot of people might agree with me, uh, because the emphasis now is on these anthropogenic local stressors in order to give us more time to solve the bigger, bigger problem of climate change. If we had billions or trillions of dollars, then it becomes a socioeconomic issue. Because really the story of anthropogenic causes and coastal degradation is a story about socioeconomics and people not able to lift themselves out of poverty and not being able to care about anything other than the next meal. So we would need to shore up uh, governments and, and, and social systems which lead to uh, better health, better food supply, clean water, sewage treatment, uh, better management of agricultural and uh, uh, watersheds. Uh, all of that uh, are, is local and we need local people to help the world do those things. So uh, I think it's a massive project. It, it would require unheard of changes in the way we interact with people from uh, foreign governments and foreign, foreign people. I mean, you look at you know, I, I worked in Belize for many, many years, and, and those reefs were, uh, all you need to do is you're, you're isolated, you're out on these outer reefs, it's all beautiful and lovely, and then you go and you fly out of Belize or other places in the, the Caribbean uh, or Central America, and there's a huge amount of poverty, and there's a huge amount of uh, waste uh, that goes into the coastal waters there. So there's this, we have to solve uh, several problems simultaneously. We have to uh, put in institutions that will uplift people, uh, encourage them to do the right thing, clean up the coastal waters, clean up sewage, uh, fresh water, et cetera, for, for the folks. I, I think it's a huge, huge uh, issue. Chemical, uh, I mean, regular, there has to be more regulatory oversight of, of many of these situations. Um, you know, the thing that I talk about in the, the manuscript about many confounding constituents in effluents from coastal environments, it's not just nutrients, it's heavy metals and antibiotics uh, and many, many other industrial pollutants that we have no idea really what the effects are on coral reefs alone or in concert with nutrients. And so I think that leads very naturally to the next question I was going to ask, which is, you know, 
what should we be studying? Um, you know, what are the what are the big questions that you know we should be seeking to answer? You know, over the next um, you know decade or two that'll that'll teach us more about um, you know what these reefs need for their continued survival. Okay, so I think uh, I think from a policy standpoint, we I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a basic biologist. I I, I was not trained. And I don't do naturally things like policy, restoration, conservation, and those things. It, was, it wasn't in my training. I became a, a coral biologist to learn about the incredible complexity and beauty of corals. And we ran straight into global climate change. And it became the, our stories for the rest of our lives. But we do need to have a concerted effort on more applied sciences, which means we need to solve problems. We know we do as much as we think we could put in more money to find out about the mechanisms uh, and experiments that we have enough knowledge in hand to move forward with a comprehensive applied research program, which would address things like restoration projects. What are the best corals to put out there? What are the best genotypes and what are their phenotypic characteristics that we would like to have in order to be resilient to climate change and to coastal anthropogenic insults? Um, And those are being done on small scales right now, I would say. But we need to ramp that up. And many of our agencies, like NSF, as much as I love NSF, is not really set up to do applied science as much as they are basic science. Um, So maybe we need to rethink or uh, reallocate uh, or get new money uh, to address directly uh, some of these restoration conservation efforts. Now, NOAA does some of that, uh, but they clearly don't have enough funds to make a significant impact. It's a, it's a trickle uh, compared to what we actually need. So applied research, uh, under using what we understand about the physiology, ecology, and resilience of, of corals right now uh, to try and, and get some answers about whether we're going to actually be able to save these reefs or not, or, or restore these reefs. The Caribbean, the Caribbean is in very, very bad shape. I, I'm a... I'm a coral pessimist. Nobody likes to hear from me. Uh, I think the reefs in the Caribbean basin are done. Really? Yep. 20 meters and anything shallower than 20 meters. Done. Yep. Just too stressed. Uh, complete. It's, it's a complete shift uh, in the community composition of these reefs right now. And I don't know, uh, other than by intervention, if we could get past that tipping point that got them there and push it back towards a more coral dominated uh, reef system or more, at least a more balanced reef system. You know, we have macroalgae and soft corals that have basically taken over uh, the primary uh, membership of coral communities on, uh, on Caribbean coral reefs. Um, it's not, it's still a coral reef. It's just a different coral reef. And the other problem is, of course, the, uh, the framework of the reef itself. Uh, how long is that going to last under increasing 
ocean acidification conditions. Uh, so that that's these are all, I, I, you know, time. We are running out of time. That's the problem. Even again, if you did your, uh, I'll give you a trillion dollars. I don't know if even if I had a trillion dollars, if by the year 2050, I could make enough happen to make a difference on coral reefs in the Caribbean. Other places, I think we have a good shot at, but I'm not convinced the Caribbean can be saved at this point. Yeah, it sounds incredibly difficult. And I'm wondering, you know, um, and this may be a, a, an interesting topic to close on is, you know, what's at stake? Um, what do we lose when we lose these reefs? The, the annual income uh, that coral reefs provide, the food re uh, in terms of, say, something like tourism for those nations that have those uh, extensive coral reefs, um, uh, food supply for many nations, especially island nations. Uh, you know, we just had the uh, uh, climate change meetings and uh, we have islanders from Pacific nations that are not going to be there in 2050. <laughs> they, they're going to be the because of the elevated sea level. Um, so food supply, uh, tourism dollars, hurricane protection, you know, so these have all these have all been realized. The loss of coastal coral reefs, nearshore coral reefs, has definitely resulted in more damage to coastal communities because the energy associated with waves generated by hurricanes are not being dissipated by uh, these structures anymore. Uh, so there's a there's a ton more. And then this only gets worse if the reef accretion, the growth of coral reefs is negative because of ocean acidification. Then the reefs actually begin to dissolve. And this has been documented in several areas of, as well. So you start to get dissolution, you know, the storm comes along and breaks up the reef, turns it into rubble, uh, and, and all the effects on coastal communities uh, occur as a result of that. So there's a huge amount at stake, you know, and, and you know, the, the, I, I don't think this is a, U, a U.S. issue. This is a world issue. You know, there, there's going to have to be a lot of people uh, stepping up and 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 trying to solve these problems and, it, and it's going to take your trillion dollars and more to do that <laughs> yeah I, I noticed that you uh, you up the funds from multi-billions to trillions oh, i had to because no, it's absolutely. so it's so incredibly uh, it's it's sad it's really been a heartbreak for many of us in the field um you know we're, we're doing the best we can but you know the science I think the scientists have provided, done their job in providing the information that policymakers require in order to make hard decisions. I think the information is there. We can we can get more. We can get better. Um, but I think the, the the data is already there that tells us we need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, I mean, we'll certainly hope that those actions are, are taken sooner rather than later and, you know, with gusto. Um, Dr. Lesser, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thanks again for having me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.